You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Good to see so many of you here. So I have a wonderful aunt and uncle Aunt Margaret and Uncle Gene, who really loved me and invested in me for decades. And I have a lot of fond memories of visiting their home during my growing up years, really in inside out terms, core memories that really come from my beloved aunt and uncle. The lavish meals they prepared and the lots of good music on the piano and the sweet smell of cut summer grass as you walk through their garage and just being gracious to me and helping me at many points. And so they really had a big impact on my life. But I also remember something very odd. I spent most of my Christmases growing up at their house, and something always struck me as odd about their place. At Christmas time every year, on the backside of their tan house, which faced north over their backyard and then over a big open field, they always hung a huge wooden framed star with lights on it. Now, that maybe doesn't seem necessarily odd. What I particularly remember about the star is that they didn't turn it on before Christmas, but then after Christmas is over, when all the presents are gone and the snow is no longer magical, it's just an, anew- just an annoyance, a hassle, there hung that star, and they were very intentional about turning it on every night. Now, for some... Some of us, they may not seem very odd because after all, you can you know, drive through neighborhoods in April and May and still see some people haven't taken down their Christmas decorations yet. But for my aunt and uncle, who are very thoughtful people, this was not an accident. It was very intentional. They are not lazy people. In fact, they're in their 90s now and they're very spry and they still have that old star. Now, it was only many years later that I came to understand the significance of their actions they kept that star lit from Christmas Day on into January because they were celebrating today what we call the Sunday of Epiphany. What is Epiphany? 
Well, Epiphany is the day 12 days after Christmas, that would be January 6th normally, which is the real origin of the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, or also, if you know Shakespeare's play, Twelfth Night. Epiphany is the 12th day of Christmas when Christians have traditionally celebrated the coming of the Magi or the wise men who followed the star to find the Christ child. So traditionally, the Sunday that's closest to January 6th, in this case today, January 3rd, is celebrated as Epiphany Sunday. So happy Epiphany, if you didn't know that. Now, for some of you, what I'm about to say is going to mess up your Christmas dreams, and I'm sorry about that, just a bit. The reason we celebrate Epiphany after the Christmas season, the reason we talk about the Magi afterwards, and maybe even when we had that text read, you thought, what are we reading that? That's a Christmas story. The reason Epiphany is after the Christmas season or or concludes the Christmas season is because we know from the biblical text that the arriving of the Magi didn't happen until about one or two years later after Jesus was born. So I'm sorry to spoil Christmas cards and Christmas pageants, but the Magi weren't there with the shepherds and angels. They were there, but the Magi came quite a bit later, the text tells us. They, they find Mary and Joseph in the house later, and we'll see why it's one to two years later here in a moment. Now, we don't need to start an anti-Magi stable campaign for 2021 or something. It's fine. It's a, the pictures we have of Christmas are very representative, but I want you to understand why this is significant. So here's the question then. If that text we just had read and that is traditionally used for Epiphany, the coming of the Magi, is not actually part of the Christmas story, what is its point? Well, that's what I want to look at today from Holy Scripture. If you have a Bible, I encourage you on your phone, or if you have a physical Bible, that'd be great to turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you're not, we'll put some of the verses on the screen for you as well. So it starts right off in verse 1. Let me read those first couple of verses again. So it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Okay, so who are these Magi? Well, we all have images, again, from Christmas cards and Christmas plays, et cetera, of what these men were. Maybe for you, the image looks strikingly like an 11-year-old in a bathrobe with a towel on his head, whatever it was. But who were these Magi? Were they magicians? That's where the word magician comes from. Were they kings? Were they wise men? Who were they? Well, we don't know for sure. Matthew doesn't tell us a ton, but we know that these Magi were probably from a priestly caste of men from the Middle East, from basically modern-day Iraq or Persia. They were scholars of the stars. That is, they were men who were trained. They were, they were scholars who were trained to how to interpret phenomena in the, in the skies as well as dreams. They were probably, again, from the ancient area of Babylon. And, you know, the Christmas carol we sing, We Three Kings, there's not really evidence they were actually kings, but that kind of becomes the tradition. We don't, it doesn't even say, Matthew doesn't even tell us there were three of them, but because there are three gifts named, a lot of times those become traditions that they were kings. But what they probably were, were, again, these sort of professional, intelligent astrologers, which is kind of weird, pagan, non-Jewish people who, are, who have made this long journey. And we can see that these magi, even though, here's the odd thing about it, even though they have nothing to do with Judaism, they somehow interpreted some phenomena that happened in the sky, maybe like what many of us witnessed on December 21st recently, some kind of um, connection of the planets or something. Whatever it was, they interpreted that somehow to mean that there was a Jewish king who had been born. Now, where in the world would they get that knowledge? 
Well, we don't know for sure, but ever, if you think about it, ever since, ever since the 6th century BC, if you remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, if you know your Old Testament stories, he came and conquered Judah and Jerusalem, the lower parts of Israel, and he took back tons of Jewish people, including some really famous ones like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who ended up rising up and becoming very important in the Babylonian empire. And it's not difficult to imagine how people like Daniel and others probably using their Hebrew scriptures, using the stories of Israel, probably injected into the libraries and into the lore of Babylon, these stories from the prophets, for example. So sometime earlier, so way back on the night of Jesus' birth, these wise men saw something and they began to research. And they finally came to the conclusion that there was a Jewish king that had been born. So the wise men who had given their lives to observing the stars knew that this was some kind of sign. And you can imagine their excitement and their eagerness. They got out their old dusty scrolls and searched among them for clues. And they finally decide it's a Jewish king. Maybe one of the texts they read was from Numbers 24, 17, part of what they figured out, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. So instead of just sitting around and discussing this or maybe writing a few books about it or publishing an article in the Babylonian Astrological Journal, instead they pack up all their things and take the 800-mile journey, probably with a large entourage, 800-mile journey to go find this king. Now, if you've heard that a king has been born, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the capital. So they get there and they go straight to Jerusalem. They go straight to the palace and where, because that's where a newborn king would be. They go straight to the king and queen. And we see, however, there's a problem right away in verse three. Look at it there again. When King Herod heard this, that there was a king born, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Little did these foreign magi know that the guy that they went to who had the title king of the Jews was Herod the Great, who was no true king of the Jews at all. In fact, he was an Idumean, a group of kind of half Jews who had conquered Jerusalem. He's not a descendant of the line of David. He's a Roman imperial appointee. And they probably didn't know that this king, Herod, was by this time several decades into a tyrannical paranoid, bloody rule. He was a paranoid ruler who was so scared that people were trying to take over his kingdom that he killed several of his sons, one of his wives, and a whole groups of people and their families. So imagine the situation when he's there, the end of his reign, he's already super paranoid, and these foreigners come in with their entourage and say, where's the one born king of the Jews? This is very disturbing to him. And if you look at your text, it says there that he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him and word spread quickly. Herod could tell that there was something serious about these magi, and so, and they're talking about a king being born, so he hatches a plan. The text says that he was so upset that he called together the religious leaders, the Sadducees in this case, who said, okay, is there really a king born of the Jews predicted? Where is that? And they say, yes, in Bethlehem, it's going to happen, and then look at verses seven and eight. <clears throat> so once he hears this, Herod called the magi secretly, pulls them aside and says, found out from the, the exact time the star had appeared. Like, when was it? It turns out it was a year or two before when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem 
And he said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me that I too may go and worship him. Now the Magi were pretty smart. They were wise, I guess we'd say. Did they know Herod's real plan? I don't know. But looking back, it's easy to discern what Herod had planned to do. He was going to use the Magi to find exactly where this contender to his throne was, and then he was going to kill him. So the Magi left Jerusalem. They took the short, dusty, six-mile road down to Bethlehem, to the tiny village there. And by some miracle, the star appears again, maybe it's an angel, and led them to the house, it says, where Mary and Joseph and the child are. And when they enter the house, they see Mary and the young child, and they know that it is the king, and they bow down, they pay homage to him as a great king, and they gave him traditional royal gifts of of ancient Middle Eastern era. So for a king, precious metals, spices, perfumes, so gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, after the visit, we don't know how long they sat and chatted or whatever, but verse 12 tells us that they didn't go back to Herod because an angel had warned them in a dream not to do so. So they, they slipped into the, the Christmas story anonymously and they slip out just as quietly as well. You can imagine back in Jerusalem, we don't know how long Herod waited, looking, when are these people going to come back? And finally, he realizes they've duped me. They have not come back. You can imagine him storming around his throne room. And then finally, he calls his guard and says, I'll take this once and for all. Go down to Bethlehem and kill all the boys, one to two years and younger, according to the time that he had heard from the Magi. What a horrible day that was to have the Roman stormtroopers march in slaughter these unsuspecting little boys. We don't know how many it was based on estimates we can have of of Bethlehem at the size. Maybe it was a dozen boys or so, but it doesn't matter how many. It was horrible. If you have a two-year-old right now, maybe give him an extra squeeze just to think about how hard that was. Of course, we do know that one did, in fact, escape. We see in verses 13 to 15, if you continue on in chapter 2, that the very night that the Magi left Joseph and Mary's house, that angel that had warned them to flee appeared to Joseph and told them to flee immediately to Egypt. And so without waiting, they did. Maybe those gifts were how they were able to pay for this unexpected journey. They end up living in Egypt for a while. And then when they come back, they don't return to this area because one of Herod's sons, Herod has now died, one of his sons is ruling. So they go way up north, far away, in Galilee, in Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grows up. So it's a familiar story. It's a powerful story. It's a dark story that seems kind of odd, especially how the story goes as you think about Christmas. What is the point, and what is its relevance for you and me here at the beginning of a new year? Well, there are many good things we can learn from this. And if you've been around Sojourn, you know we've been preaching through Matthew. It's kind of fun to go back and and to look at one of the early stories in it. We've been preaching through Matthew, and one of the things we'll see is that Jesus is bowed down and worshiped by people with faith all throughout the book. This is really just the, the first instance of people seeing him. And also related, it's the first instance of Gentiles non-Jewish people understanding the Jewish Messiah and, and worshiping him while the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did not. So those are certainly some of the things going on here. But there's something else I want to pull out for you. I want just to grasp from this story today. And I can summarize it up with this one vital statement. That God loves the weak 
and humble way. God loves the weak and humble way. And let me show you where I get this from our text. If you were to turn back just a page in Matthew and see how the gospel of Matthew begins, it begins in a rather unexpected way. It begins with a long genealogy, the origins of who Jesus' ancestors were. And one of the things that's so striking about the genealogy that's in Matthew chapter one is that it is full of characters of ill repute and of lesser status in society. And particularly, four really important women are highlighted in a list of all other men. Four really important women are highlighted, but they're all women who, by Jewish standards especially, would be looked at rather askance. Tamar, from Genesis 38, who seduced her father-in-law. Rahab, the pagan prostitute. Ruth, who's a Moabitess, who are, are enemies of the Israelites, and then Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite, who only enters the Davidic line through David's forced adultery with her. This emphasis that's in the genealogy of outsiders and people of ill repute right at the beginning sets the tone in the Gospel of Matthew that God's ways are not humanity's ways. If you and I were writing a, a genealogy of Jesus, we'd put all like superheroes and all the greatest hits, but instead Matthew highlights these these unexpected elements within his own genealogy. Another way you see God loving the weak and humble way, do you notice the contrast in our story between the two kings, one who has claimed the title of king of Jews and the one who is truly the king of Jews and, and honored as such? And the difference between the two kings is remarkable because the one is this this, this tyrannical despot, this paranoid, insecure person who is, has all the power and all the authority and commands things and murders and he's in control. But the true king has no power at all. He is a completely helpless child, yet he is, you feel the contrast of the two kings. He's the true king because God's ways are not our ways. God loves the weak and humble way. And I think the most powerful way this is played out that God loves the weak and humble way is the fact that it's all throughout chapter two that Jesus is referred to with one title, the child. Seven times in Matthew chapter two, that's the description of Jesus. He is the child. In verse eight, it says, go search for the child. In verse nine, it says, a star stopped over the child. Verse 11, they saw the child with Mary and worshiped him. Verse 13, the angel tells Joseph, take the child, and it goes on and on. And in the history of the church, that's been a pretty important way to describe Jesus. It's not one that you and I usually think of, but consider that that is the primary way that Jesus is described. The God of the universe becoming enfleshed is described as the child. The irony the shock is intentional and great. Because unlike the biographies of Jesus' contemporaries, like great Roman rulers and orators and generals, the biography of Jesus that we have emphasizes right at the beginning that he is simply the child. In this introduction, he performs no miracles. There's no magical force field around him that protects him from Herod. He doesn't wink or flick his magical finger and all of a sudden hot chocolate appears for the shepherds or something. He doesn't, doesn't wave his hand when the Roman stormtroopers go and say, these are not the babies you're looking for or something. He's not like baby Yoda who's holding something back or something. He has no power. He is completely helpless in this story. And yet he is the king, just the child. 
Now fast forward this little child by 30 years and listen to him teach. For example, in Matthew 18, do you remember what he says? He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you become like children, you will never enter or not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains in the next verse what this means. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Is it just a coincidence that our Lord chose this most unexpected object lesson, a child, to teach how it is that we're to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's not. This is God's way of doing things. He loves to work through and in the powerless, the helpless, and especially the humble. What Jesus is teaching here is the great irony of God that he loves the weak and humble way. The door of the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is always open, but it's very low. And we could give all kinds of other examples from scripture. Now we may say that's all fine and beautiful, but let me get more specific and personal here with us. If this is true, that God loves the weak and humble way, then you and I must wholeheartedly embrace this way of life for ourselves. Let me say that again. If it's true that God loves the weak and humble way, if you want to thrive, if you want to flourish, if you want to be happy, if you want to find life, then you have to be ordered with how God has ordered the universe. You have to be aligned with how God himself is because he loves the weak and humble way. You will never find life unless you and I live the way that he did with the ultimate example being God himself incarnate coming humbly as a child. And it's not just an idealistic vision, it's very practical. It's a very day-to-day -day reality of our relationships. Humility is not just this sort of nice theological idea where we can say, yeah, check that off, I believe in humility. Humility looks like a certain thing in actual relationships or not. So you think of, for example, our home relationships. What does the weak and humble way look like there? Well, think about it if you have children. I know many of you did, or maybe you're a kid yourself or a, a young person. You've got brothers and sisters. Parents, maybe you're aware that especially during this season with NTI, it's been a long time, but maybe during Christmas even here, you've been too harsh. You've been exasperating to your children. Maybe you've just been too busy and you're just focused only on their behavior and how annoying it is, and you've neglected their hearts. Maybe you're just ready for Christmas vacation and everything to be over. Or if you're a kid, teenager or a little kid in a home, I can imagine you're probably annoyed with your siblings and maybe with your parents as well. Maybe you've been harsh, maybe you've been rude, maybe you've been hurtful. It's true of our lives. What do we do with all of that, all the feelings of that, all the ugliness of that? We humble ourselves. I'm gonna invite you into the beauty of simply going to the other person that you've been impatient with. Maybe you said something stupid, maybe it was intentional, maybe it was unintentional, you really cut them. 
and just humble yourself and ask for forgiveness because it is so freeing. It is so beautiful to lay down, lay down our pretensions, lay down our self-justification and be childlike and just ask for forgiveness to just humble yourself. This year, I think was probably, I'd say our probably best Christmas ever. We have six kids, you may know. They're getting older, they're good kids. We, we have a long drawn out Christmas morning where we watch each other open presents. The kids bought really thoughtful presents for each other, so it wasn't just us. It was just, it was so sweet. It was such a good morning, just relaxed and enjoyable. And then I made an amazing lunch. It was great. I'm usually, I don't cook steaks very well and I finally nailed it. I made these wonderful steaks. It was just the perfect day until about two o'clock when yours truly got offended by something one of the kids said, said some stupid stuff, the kid got upset, and it was, it was on. And this is a kid that I get along with very well, but we just triggered each other in, in a way, and it just kind of soured the rest of the day. Doesn't that stink? I mean, we apologized even at the time, but you know, the adrenaline's up and you're, you just feel horrible, right? So the next morning, I just went to him, you know, first thing and just said, I, no self-justification, no, I just said, I'm sorry, and here's why what I said was wrong. And he, thankfully, he was the same way. It's so sweet. Instead of just carrying all that baggage and all those hurt relationships and all those, that bitterness, just humble yourself. Just go to the other person and apologize. And it's not an apology, I'm speaking to you men especially, to say, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt. That's not an apology. Own your stuff. Don't expect anything back. Don't self-justify. Don't say, well, if you would have said that, no. Just be humble and apologize. That's good. It's beautiful. That's where life is to be found. You remember that great old story from O. Henry? You probably read it in junior high or high school or later, The Gift of the Magi. You remember that? I'm sorry if I'm going to spoil it for you, but it's about this young couple who are in love and they both sell their most valued possessions to buy the other a Christmas present. And then it turns out when they give the presents to each other that they don't work for each other because they sold their most valued possessions they would have gone with. Well, a few years ago, I read a, like a follow-up story that somebody years later wrote in the New Yorker who, that imagined Jim and Della, that was their name, six months later, when the magic and the laughter of Christmas is the story's worn off and they're both a little bitter about their losses and their sacrifices and comparing who gave up more, that's reality, friends. That's reality. Maybe you had a Christmas that was full of tension and fighting with your spouse or children or friends or distant relatives. Maybe you had a brief respite and it was wonderful, a sweet time. Either way, Sooner or later, reality is going to set in and there are going to be unkind words and actions, hurt feelings, insensitivity, downright meanness. Our only hope and the way to life is to humble yourself, be quick to apologize, to repent, to go to your wife or husband or friend or children 
Lay down that pride that's keeping you from life and just apologize. And humility means really listening to the other person and not just listening to their words. This is one of my weaknesses and I think probably a lot of for you as well. Like I'll hear my wife say something and then I'll just launch under her words and analyze those and dissect them and win the argument. Instead of listening that her words are not necessarily what's really her heart is saying. Humility takes the time to not just react to words, but to listen to the heart. That's the way of humility. That's Christ's way. I mean, how does a marriage go from wedding day to D-Day, that is divorce day, or maybe for a lot of people, R-I-D-C-A day? I really don't care anymore day. How does a wedding, how does a marriage go from wedding day to that? From a hundred thousand tiny little choices of humility or not. God's way of a deep and deepening humility in us is the only kind of soil that can sustain the flower of marriage through the raging torrents that screwed up people bring to every marriage. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you don't have children. It doesn't matter. The same principle is true in all of our relationships. And as we think about church relationships, when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, as we've been preaching through it, one of the clearest notes, if you've been around, I hope you've seen over and over, it's like the the chorus of the song that keeps coming up throughout Matthew is the necessity of forgiving one another especially in the church, that the people of God have got to forgive each other from the heart. We've got to be peacemakers. We've got to show mercy. We've got to forgive. That, those are the mega themes of Matthew. It's no accident that the story begins with this picture and this invitation to the humble way because forgiveness and mercy and peacemaking are built on the solid foundation of humility. That's how you have the strength To actually forgive is by being humble. Why do we need to be constantly exhorted to forgive each other and make peace with each other? It's because relationships are hard and they're fraught with problems. Even among God-fearing Christians who want to do what's right, it's only a matter of time till I hurt your feelings and you hurt my feelings. I offend you, maybe intentionally, unintentionally. There are, it's just only a matter of time till there are people that in the church that you are going to be hurt by and you're going to hurt whether you know it or not. I can remember times past where I didn't even want to go to church sometime because I felt so much tension with a person. Maybe that's you today. or Maybe you're not here today and you're watching online for that reason. What's the solution? What is the way that the scriptures teach that we're to live together in community and find the life that we long for? The solution is humility. It's choosing the weak and humble way. It's choosing to let others' interests not only be equally as important as our own, but more important than our own. And where do we learn that? From Jesus. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul describes what happened with Jesus in his incarnation, that he who is the King and Lord of the universe, glorious and worthy of all worship, humbled himself, poured his life out, took the form of a slave and a servant, even to the point of an ignoble death. And as a result, he was exalted. And that becomes the model 
for us. If God could humble himself and become the child, so too can and should we, because therein is life. God's ways of humility are the good ways for us. I don't know what's going on in your individual hearts. Maybe right now, maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's feeling neglected by others. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pride. Maybe you have a critical spirit toward others. You fill in the blank. No matter what it is, let me beg you, work through those feelings. Do not deny those feelings. Don't just try to escape from them. Don't just try to cover them with other things. Pay attention to those thoughts and feelings because those there's something going on there and then work through them, maybe with the help of a therapist or help of a friend, work through them into the meadow, the flowering meadow of health and life by walking the beautiful path of humility. Humility is at the core of our healing from these emotional conflicts. It's not a quick fix. It's not an instant cure. But the emotional residue often is there for a while. But the way of God is the way of relationships of humility toward each other. Forgiving and receiving forgiveness. Therein is life. So here we are at the end of the Advent Christmas season. It, it is time to put your tree away, at least by January 6th. I am watching you. It, it can be a sad time that feels helpless. I mean, winter after Christmas, especially if you really struggle with seasonally affected disorder or other anxieties or depression, it's a very difficult time. As we say goodbye to a difficult year and look forward to 2021, I want to say to you, friends, there is life to be found in the child, capital C, child's path of humility. This is the way that we can live together in our private homes, behind closed doors, and here together as a church, to live together in humility towards each other, because that is where the life that we long for will be found. And as we begin a new year together, let me invite